we need science that moves us. And if, if nature writing can do that um, through the uh, emotional landscape of writers, brilliant. That's the, that would be ideal. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with writer, instructor, and landscape designer and historian Catherine Alto, author of Writing Wild, Women Poets, Ramblers, and Mavericks Who Shape How We See the Natural World. Catherine Alto is the author of three books, including Writing Wild, as well as The Natural World of Winnie the Pooh, A Walk Through the Forest That Inspired the Hundred Acre Wood, and Nature and Human Intervention. A personal essayist and book reviewer, her work appears in Smithsonian Magazine, Outside, Sierra, BuzzFeed, Resurgence and the Ecologist, and more. She is currently working on her fourth book. Catherine, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you, Lauren, for having me. It's a delight to be here. What does wild mean to you? And I'm going to expand on that question because you write a bit about this in your introduction to writing wild. But I'd love listeners to get a sense of how you approached the many definitions of wild when compiling this collection. So what does wild mean? Wild is a very fraught term these days, and some would argue that there's nothing left that is wild in this, uh, in the Anthropocene, this uh, human-altered uh, climate that we live in right now. So as I write in writing wild, um, I'm playing loose with the term. And the women who I feature in writing wild, the first, the first women actually, lived in in an age, Dorothy Wordsworth, Susan Fenimore Cooper, lived in an age when things were more wild and they weren't touched by the Industrial Revolution. And so featuring these women was really important. They were really interesting counterpoints to women who wrote later about the altered uh, environment that we live in. For example, Elizabeth Rush, who writes uh, rising about the uh, you know dispatches from the new American shore. And so these profiles of women really show how we've changed the climate, changed the environment, and through their personal essays and through their portraits of place, we see a wilderness that has changed. At the same time, I also write about something that doesn't change. It's this innate sense of wildness that we all carry inside, and this idea that that uh, yes, we do live in an altered climate, and we do live in altered places and spaces. But we innately, we are animals. We are part of this ecosystem. We are part of this web of life. And a lot of these women that I write about are trying to understand that wilderness that they carry within themselves. And so, from Kathleen Jamie, who writes about. Um, women and miscarriages through poetry and uh, giving birth and, you know, the inner landscapes that we, that we carry within that look like river systems, for example, um, to, to other people like Amy Liptrot, who, who goes to the, the uh, Orkney Islands to recover from alcoholism uh, by building a stone wall, stone by stone. You know, she needs that 
she's building her inner 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 landscape again through touching uh wild 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 uh wild spaces so it's it's uh fraught diverse and celebratory I got the sense while reading this book that you did a lot of research for this book, and I'm wondering how your own conception of quote-unquote wild changed as you uh, compiled this collection and, and ultimately wrote Writing Wild. Lauren, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so I was really fortunate. I studied my very first nature writing class was at Berkeley, but I had to fight to get the class. And I had to go to the chair of the English department and say, please, may I take this class? Uh, and it's facilitated by students, but uh, it's um, the advisor is Carolyn Merchant. And Carolyn Merchant is regarded as one of the most important environmental historians. And she wrote the book, uh, the, Death, the Death of Nature. Um, and it is about how the scientific revolution, which um, altered our perceptions of the natural world, i.e. that we could control it through mechanical engineering um, and in other, and we were weighing and measuring nature through, you know, uh, um, in labs and experiments and this sort of thing. This was the first time this had ever really been done. And um, I had studied with her, but I had to, but writing the book Writing Wild really had um, brought me into contact with women, that, some of whom I had never heard of, like Dorothy Wordsworth, who's William Wordsworth's sister. I hadn't heard of her. Um, and so, you know, she captured that romantic uh, sense, you know, this idea of, um, you know, a person before the Industrial Revolution sort of captured them and put them into you know, uh, factories and this kind of thing. There's this wildness about her. So in addition to Dorothy Wordsworth, I uh, was came into, uh, into close contact, as it were, with uh, people like uh, Jean Stratton-Porter, who witnessed the limber lost change from this wilderness of, it was a swamp in Indiana. I'm going to be in Indiana in about two weeks too, so I get to go back. I'm excited. Um, but she wrote about how uh, farmers and uh, lumberjacks were cutting down the old growth uh, hardwood forests in this swamp and people were draining it. And it's really the story of how the wilderness of the American Midwest uh, changed to this very tamed landscape. So I, I suppose what happened during Writing Wild, writing wild um, is that each woman deeply affected me. I, it took me about three weeks to write and research each chapter. Um, and whenever I had to leave that that port profile that I was writing, I, I was quite sad because I, I felt like I had gotten to know each woman. And then in the end, um, you know, I, I, I wish that each woman uh, could, that time could sort of, space could sort of compress and we could all come together and you know, Mary Austin could talk to Elizabeth Rush and uh, Dorothy Wordsworth could meet Carolyn Merchant. And that's why the the title, uh, I'm sorry, the cover page of the book has these women together in a meadow. Um, the German illustrator kind of captured my desire for that. Um, so I feel like I've been a witness to the changing wild. Um, I, and through, the, through these profiles of these women and what they saw, 
what moved them and what and what they felt during their uh, over over 200 years. How did you choose the women who make up this collection? So I was really interested in classic, new, and overlooked female nature writers. So um, I began with the pillars and classics. I felt uh, Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, um, and who was called hysterical by the patriarchal chemical industry because she was trying to educate the general population about the risks of DDT. Um, and um, so she was gonna be in it. Um, Robin Wall Kimmermer would be in it. Um, uh, Mary Austin would be in it. Uh, Mary Austin is one of the few women after whom a mountain is named. It's Mount Mary Austin in Southern California. So, uh, so those were the kind of classics. And then I was really thrilled to learn more about Susan Fenimore Cooper and more about Dorothy Wordsworth. So that really extended the reach. And then, you know, poets like Mary, Mary Oliver um, and uh, essayists like Kathleen Jamie. So I was, you know, this is a British and American book. I, I make that clear uh, in, in the introduction. Um, but um, I began to think of myself as kind of a kind of a jeweler in a way that I, I had this idea that I wanted to create a gem, this multifaceted gem that brought as much light into our understanding of women's contributions to nature writing. Um, so I wanted to make it as multifaceted as possible. So I was thinking, I was constantly sort of cutting the gem and thinking, does this person's writing and experience illuminate this field a little bit more? Um, and so originally it was just gonna be about 40 women and I was gonna write essays about them really short. And then I thought, no, I, I really can't do justice to it. So then I talked to my publisher and I said, I'm gonna do 25 essays. They're gonna be a little bit longer. And then at the end of each essay, I'm most of the essays, not all, I recommend um, like three other women to explore that write within that area. Uh, you know, so for example, about Mary Oliver, I talk about three other poets people can read um, or Elizabeth Rush, you know, three other women who are writing about climate change. So basically it comes to about 75 women in total. And the, the little summaries at the end are kind of like um, side paths that people can take uh, to explore this, uh, this, this area a little bit more. So, that's how that's that's how I how I came at it. I want to go back to the beginning of our conversation when I asked you about the idea or the definition of wild. You're a landscape historian and designer, as well as an instructor and writer. And it's really easy to see, at least for me, that nature writing and eco-critical writing, there are intersections between those interests. But I'm wondering how your garden design work, your landscape historian and designer work intersects the ways that you think about nature and the wild how do because you know landscape design is very insular I imagine you're you're talking about a, a space um, and usually a public space and so so perhaps my question is less about those intersections between wild and and not but more about public and private I'm not quite sure great question so what Binds the two. I'm I'm not a landscape architect. I'm a garden designer, landscape designer. So I I, I do I really mostly enjoy public spaces. Um, I, I've designed for University of Birmingham. I've designed hospice garden and, and that kind of thing. I love community spaces. Um, but what 
combines the two, sort of writing about the natural world and creating designs, landscape design, is that I feel like I'm I'm crafting a story with both. And so um, in one, I'm I'm writing in a sense, designing with plants, and but I'm creating a narrative. And I really understand is this a, a garden about there, is it an internal garden for themselves? Or is it more of an external garden for the front front space? Um, what are they trying to live in harmony with uh, the native plants in the area? Are they trying to impose an English garden in a desert landscape, which makes no sense? But some people do that. So that that's that's the intersection between the two. We're talking about landscape design, and I want to talk a little bit about the artwork that appears in writing wild. What's the importance to you of those illustrations in the book and that this book be both visual art and written? Great question. So we had, I was given the choice of six illustrators and I wonder if the art director at Timber Press put them in a certain order so that I would choose the first one. But uh, the first one was Gisela Goppel, who's a German illustrator. And the outside of the book is illustrated. It's beautiful. It's got beautiful raised print. Writing wild is is raised, and and um, it shows women in a meadow. Beautiful meadow. We have a uh, uh, Carolyn Finney on the front with her beautiful dreadlocks draping almost down into the grasses, and then we have Robin Wall Kimmerer hugging a, a birch tree. Uh, and she's a native indigenous American writer. And then we have in the distance, the sapphic rebel Vita Sackville West, uh, who is a brilliant plants woman and, and garden writer. She's collecting a bouquet of uh, wild uh, flowers. And then we have Helen McDonald, who's holding a goshawk on the back. And so um, it is quite meaningful because it shows uh, that the book uh, is diverse. Um, and I wanted that diversity because, you know, at Berkeley, I was reading about dead white guys all the time. And um, I love their writing, but I'm just thinking, is this it? <laughs> and so basically writing wild is the book I wish I had read when I was an undergrad. And so the cover really encapsulates the energy, uh, the wild landscapes and uh, and the diversity of female voices in nature writing today. You are facilitating a really exciting event that is taking place in April. Tell our listeners about that event. Yeah, so I founded the Rural Writing Institute in the Lake District with the uh, best-selling author James Rebanks, who wrote The Shepherd's Life and English Pastoral. And one of my students uh, who came last year uh, is from Montana. And she said, you must come to Montana and do the same thing. Um, so we have created this uh, retreat called the Retreat into the Montana Rockies. And it will be in uh, uh, April 14th through 16th. And um, I have invited Bryce Andrews, who's written Down from the Mountain, Bad Luck Way, and his new book, Holding Fire, A Reckoning with the American West. Um, so he is coming to teach about finding stories in the everyday. Um, so that's his topic. Um, and then we also have Pete Fromm, who's coming, and I'm sure you're, of course, everyone knows Pete Fromm. Uh, he's written, you know, uh, five short story collections, five novels, two memoirs, and he is going to be teaching a couple of seminars as well. And he, he's got an eye toward tactics for successfully using description 
Um, and he is going to be talking about the strategies for developing a narrative arc where uh, in, in, in stories where nature is the main character. And I will be teaching workshops on uh, the personal essay, elements of narrative nonfiction, and creating a writing practice. So the focus is on nature writing and narrative nonfiction techniques. Um, and because it's such a, a short time period uh, that um, all of the sessions we are, are together. Okay, so this retreat into the Montana Rockies is taking place April 14th through the 16th at the Lodges at Sealy Lake. And I imagine that uh, interested listeners can go to your website, katherinealto.com, to register and find out more information. Is there anything else you want listeners to know about this particular event or, or this retreat broadly? It's for emerging to experienced writers. There's going to be people from all over uh, the United States coming. And um, we're really excited to have it at the lodge there on Sealy Lake. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a conversation with Catherine Alto, author of Writing Wild. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you want to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are recording this conversation in March, Women's History Month. What responsibilities, Catherine, do you feel you carry personally as a woman writer each time you sit down to write? Lauren, that is a good question. I would say that this might, my answer might surprise you. Um, I was a women's studies minor at Berkeley, um, but people ask me all the time, um, do men and women write differently about the natural world? And my answer will probably surprise and maybe anger people, but it's subjective. And that is to say, if people use techniques of narrative nonfiction or literary journalism or you know, creative nonfiction, it's all the same. If we put ourselves into the narrative, if we're empathetic and we see the landscape and we see plants as having backstories, um, that we don't understand and that we need to under, we, we need to, uh, you know, do our research and understand them. If we use figurative language that is poetic, um, if we um, write about sense of place in a very moving way, uh, sense of place is that invisible layer of memories and history and emotions that cover a physical landscape with this invisible strata, that I would say that it's genderless, it's sexless, um, that you don't have to be, you can be a male and be maternal. You don't have to have children to be maternal. You don't have to have a bio biological children to feel maternal toward the landscape. So I would say I have a, a, a responsibility to, uh, to the natural world. Um, to, I want there to be a sense of equality that, um, that, uh, that men can write in a florid way if they want, women can write in a way that might, whichever, I, I want it to be, uh, to be sexless and genderless. This is a follow-up to that question. You write in the introduction to this book, on this warming flip side of the Industrial Revolution, the tenor and urgency of nature writing has shifted beyond our individual emotions. 
What did you mean by that? Yes, I did write that, Lauren. And I would say that, um, well, to give a little bit of background, when I moved to England 15 years ago, I remember being a little bit surprised by the debate about the obligation nature writers might have, which is that you're not a nature writer unless you write about climate change. Um, and so, uh, and I, I thought about that a long time and I, I'm, um, I do believe that, you know, obviously the poles are melting, uh, sea levels are rising, coral reefs are, are more erratic. And, um, and I do believe that if we can, if nature writers can harness science with policy that we can change the world, but storytelling is really important. Um, you know, Rachel Carson changed the world through a really simple parable at the beginning of, of Silent Spring. We need nature, we need storytellers. Uh, science, scientists have their roles, but nature writers have a special, I don't wanna say obligation, but a special talent in bringing the story of um, the industrial revolution's impact on the natural world to the general population. And I don't know if we have that nature writer right now. I mean, here in England, you know, we have David Attenborough, who, who in America is speaking for the natural world? Who, who's doing it? Like, is there one person who, who is a household name? There isn't. That is definitely worth, worth a thought. Um, people know about Henry David Thoreau. Do they know about Dorothy Wordsworth? Do they know about Jean Stratton Porter? Do they know Mary Oliver? A lot of people know about Mary Oliver. And she, she definitely, you know, helped people feel comfortable uh, in writing about, you know, their, their, uh, their, their innermost feelings and, and the way the natural world cycles of the natural world sort of marry that. So I would say nature writers do have, um, we, we do have a responsibility, but even if one doesn't write about climate change, it doesn't mean you're not a nature writer. You look at someone like Annie Dillard, who wrote, you know, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, uh, which won a Pulitzer Prize for narrative, uh, nonfiction. Um, she's not writing about climate change. She's writing about metaphysical issues. Uh, you can write poetry still without um, writing about climate change. So I think the big takeaway, and we know this from uh, Nan Shepard who wrote um, The Living Mountain. She was really scared about writing that book because it was not about, um, it was about feelings and it was about recesses in landscapes, not you know, it wasn't, she was concerned about what the male dominated scientific mountaineering community in the Cairngorms uh, mountain range in Scotland would, would feel, would think, would think about her writing, which was not rational. It was about emotions and it was about feeling. And she put the manuscript to the living mountain in a drawer for almost 35 years because she was scared. And it was published in 1976. And uh, the lesson is, male, no matter who you are, no matter how you identify, no matter what your voice is, no matter what your lanes, a relationship is with the natural world, you have a voice and you should feel free to write about it. If it includes uh, writing about climate change, great. If it doesn't, that's fine too. And I am going to not push back, but I'm going to repeat the, the line and maybe synthesize or um, clarify what you just said. So the line is, on this warming flip side of the Industrial Revolution, 
the tenor and urgency of nature writing has shifted beyond our individual emotions. So what I'm hearing you say in response is that our individual emotions are important to those narratives, but it is, you know, it is, it's probably that we need both. We need, we need the the realism of this warming climate, but we also need the narratives of each person's story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we need, we need emotional storytelling, you know, uh, emotional storytelling is wonderful, but in narrative nonfiction, it's this wonderful dance between crafting scenes, which can have emotion and conveying information. If you look at someone like Elizabeth Rush, she's a poet, but she writes about science in poetic language and it, there is, it's seamless. There's never a moment when you think, okay, now she's conveying information. This is the scientific part. So um, that kind of writing really touches us and moves us. And we need science that moves us. And if if nature writing can do that um, through the uh, emotional landscape of, 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 of writers, brilliant. That's the, that would be ideal. That would be wonderful. But one should not feel that nature writing is cordoned off and fenced off if you don't write about uh, this uh, flip side of the Industrial Revolution. There's a lot that, that, um, that we can bring to nature writing. Catherine, what do you want your readers to come away with? What insights, what's, what knowledge, what emotions even when they read Writing Wild? Well... One thing I can say is that that's, that's a really complex question. And I know that every woman changed me in some way. And I'm, I know the genre pretty well. And I um, have read environmental history. And I think about the natural world and landscape history and design a, a lot. But each woman came into my mind and spirit and heart and really did um, make me think and change the way. I was particularly interested in how Carolyn Finney's book, um, Black Faces, White Spaces, um, affected me and my understanding of how environmentalism is often a white privilege. Um, What about if someone is uh, disabled, that they're not going to experience, they're not going to be able to climb a tree, they're not going to be able to perhaps touch the the low leaves on a on a on a tree. So I would say those particular chapters or essays really uh, affected me. Um, and then there are there are people like um, Laurette Savoy whose book Trace made me completely think how I spatially. <laughs> uh, you know, she is a geologist at Mount Holyoke uh, University in um, in Massachusetts, and she thinks in terms of deep time and earth, deep earth systems. So my hope is that for people who read this to just let each woman realize that each woman did live a very different life and, and is living a very different life and let them come into your life. Um, and what's gonna happen is your to be read book list is going to grow exponentially after reading this and, uh, and just in, in really enjoy that. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Lauren, for having me. Take care. That was Catherine Alto, author of Writing Wild, women poets, ramblers, and mavericks who shape how we see the natural world. Out now from Timber Press. 
To register for the writing retreat Catherine spoke about in this episode, go to Catherine's website, catherinealto.com. That's K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-A-A-L-T-O dot com. The retreat into the Montana Rockies takes place April 14th through the 16th at the Lodges at Sealy Lake. Look for more information about Catherine at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris Moyles engineered this episode. Our artwork was designed for The Right Question by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.